Susan Felth, the Citizen Kane of podcasting. Modern man is confronted with so many movies. Which ones are films? And which ones are filth? Number 98. It's the daughter of esteemed rap artist Kanye West. Northwest. Is that her name? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She goes by Nori. <laughs> Nori's cool. Okay. I, th- I thought you were her, her and Peter. Her and Peter North together make North by Northwest. Oh, boy. <laughs> I thought you were going to say her name actually was North by Northwest, and that truly would have blown my mind. Um, but yes, that that's the film. Well, Not... inevitably, she's going to bring out some shoes or something that will be called North, and the oh, poster she's... will say North by Northwest. She's apparently already got a makeup line coming out, and I, I, mean... I don't know what it's called, but it, is, it might as well be called North by Northwest. Zoe Bowie we'll changed his name. I think Moonin and Zappa changed her name, or at least like goes by a different name. Really? Yeah. yeah. Sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's like Moonin. Zoe Bowie seems a little rough, though. I, I, I think is that Duncan Jones? I think that's <laughs> Duncan Jones. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> when I think about Duncan Jones's movies, he everything he makes comes across as "Take me seriously. Do not call me Zoe." Zowie. Right. Zowie. <laughs> Zowie. Zoe. I thought it was Zowie. Maybe it is. Uh, but this is, Zowie Bowie. This this is another iconic director, Alfred Hitchcock, talking about North by Northwest. It's maybe a film. Change his maybe name. film. He, this is hmm? he wasn't gonna change his name. He stayed with Hitchcock. Right. Well, he hitched his cock changes. to Hitchcock from early on. Yeah. Okay. Yep, and of course, when wagon. Cary Grant pronounces it, he'd be like Alfred Hitchcock. Because <laughs> you notice well, that with the town's end. <laughs> Cary Grant. Was actually born at Archibald Alec Leach, which is yeah, I knew that was going to come name. out at some point. I know that'd be that's well <laughs> kind of a better name. Okay, what are our names? I'm it's Matt. a good name for a character. It's not a good name for a, a leading <laughs> Hollywood man in the sixties. I don't think. Yeah, you're right. Uh, right. I'm Mark. I'm Luke. I did change my name kinda. Uh, I was born Luke Chapman, and then when my mum got married, my dad adopted me, so I'm Luke Summerhays. Okay. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, that's, that's also briefly in my teens, uh, I started going by Luke Jonathan Danger James Summerhay. So that I say Danger was literally Whoa. my middle name. <laughs> but eventually I gave up on that one. And actually we have our, our first guest on this particular podcast. You're 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 the first one to show up in the guest seat, Mike Richards from the Mission Log, the Orville podcast. Hello. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for uh thanks for having me back. No, uh, uh, on on one of your shows, first time on this show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, first guest on this show. Although it's kind of the uh, the the evolution from the Sci-Fi Sanctuary, which you were on. So, <laughs> um, now you asked for this one, and it's you, but you said you it was pretty new to you. That was so, vaguely well, threatening. You asked for this. You asked for <laughs> it. <laughs> I uh, I get what I deserve. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I saw you sent me a list of movies. And some I saw, some I had not. This one being Hitchcock and me not having seen it before that I could remember. 
Uh, I think after viewing it um, to prepare for this, I've decided that I I never had seen it before. Um, so I did want to, if I have an excuse to watch a classic and kind of do a deep dive into it, uh, I, I'm going to take advantage of that that chance and do this. There were some other films that they had sent me that I had either seen already or just kind of didn't have this level of, didn't spike this level of interest in me. Mm. So that's, that's why I threw my name in that, threw my hat in the ring for this one. Okay. I, as for me, I was saying before we hit the record that I, I, I did watch this, you know, I took notes and stuff, but I could have easily gotten away with not watching this one to do this podcast. Cause it's probably like the 12th time I've seen it. I've seen it in the theater, see on VHS, see on DVD. Yeah. I guess it's a uh, I'd, I'd seen bits and pieces of it here and there. I thought I had seen the entire thing all the way through, but I don't think that's the case. I think this is my first time really watching it all the way through. You see, I was wondering if it's something I would have made you watch in high school or something. So <laughs> probably would have said yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I I'd shove movies down people's throats, but yeah. <laughs> well, that's this podcast because I guess I'm going next. Until the day before yesterday, I had never seen a Hitchcock film. What? Psycho. <laughs> okay. Well, you got a few. I don't. Th- I don't think I'm suffering Psycho now. So I need to clarify something for listeners of this podcast who maybe haven't listened to previous podcasts we've done. I'm not a film guy. Like, I'm a sci-fi guy, which is why I did the sci-fi podcast with Matt. And I've definitely sought out a lot of sci-fi stuff and monster movies and whatnot. But and I watch films. I like films. But I'm not a film guy. I don't seek out old classic films. That's one of the reasons doing this podcast is good for me. I haven't seen most of this top 100 list. I might well have seen more of the bottom 100 list. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we like when Matt and me were talking fans. about, we were talking about Steven Spielberg and like, what's the best Spielberg movie? Simple. Jurassic Park is his best movie. The Lost World is his second best movie. And Matt's bringing up like, ooh, what about you know Schindler's List? It's so important. Does it have dinosaurs? Yes or no? You know, that's yes. me on films. <laughs> so <laughs> wait a minute, Luke. Don't don't you make your girlfriends watch Schindler's List? <laughs> yeah, but I probably make them watch Jurassic Park before that. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that yesterday? Yes, I saw that in the theater yesterday morning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because that was the last week confusion. All right. Um, this is, it's funny because I'm, I I don't know. I guess I grew up mostly watching schlock. Hmm. Um, I didn't see Jurassic Park until like 2014. I didn't see Jaws <laughs> until I didn't see Jaws until the early 2000s. I still not seen Jaws. <laughs> um, Dude, Jaws is I, my I saw... favorite now. <laughs> As an, adult, I, I, as an old person, I, my, my parents took me to see Jaws in the movie theater when I was seven. I don't know that that's a responsible parental decision, but um, it is one of my favorite movies, man. It really is, especially being from Long Island, uh, where a lot of that was filmed sort of out on the East End or, you know, out Martha's Vineyard area. Um, it's got kind of a special place in local, uh, you know, appreciation out there. Mm. It was like rewatching it last summer. It was really interesting because since Jaws was already in kind of a quaint old fashioned town in 1975, it was really like watching a world that didn't exist anymore, which is fascinating. Mm. More so than watching Jurassic Park, which is about dinosaurs. <laughs> it's really interesting. I wonder. I mean, we talk about the tentpole movies, you know, the big Hollywood thing, uh, Jaws, then probably Star Wars and Jurassic Park. Is it is, mm. is I guess how this was a tent pole of that kind of thing for until jaws this movie 
North by Northwest? I feel like it was kind of like the action film. It's kind of the template this, for the Bond films in a way. This was a huge... I feel like this is the biggest Hitchcock film, but I don't know if that's accurate. But I'm used to Hitchcock, Hitchcock being like claustrophobic, and this is anything but claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Mm. Agoraphobic? Yeah, maybe. Actually, that's <laughs> yeah, a great and, description and, and, and for what, this. What, what kind of blows me away is that this movie only came out about 16 years before Jaws did. So, I mean, 16 years ago from the time of this recording is 2007. You know, which doesn't, in my mind, seem that long ago. So, you know, as far as cinematic history goes, the movies aren't separated by a a ton of time. Hmm. It's also this this film specifically is making use of big, like modern architecture and things like that. And I mean, Mount Rushmore is an absurd monument, but it is like an impressive feet of engineering where jaws was the opposite where it's like everything in jaws is like these little wooden like tourist shacks and things like that so it, it really you could tell me that this takes place after jaws and i'd almost believe you if i didn't know better i guess jaws was in star wars both of them were happy accidents whereas this movie is you know hollywood's premier director basically yeah. firing firing on all cylinders so you know. This is more like Star Wars than it is like Jaws, I think, to be honest. <laughs> Gary Grant could be your your Han Solo. Um, let's get into the actors a bit, but uh, let's summarize first, just to refresh. All right, summer. summary is a little long. It's hard to hard to condense. Anyway, Roger Thornhill is an advertising executive who's leading a hustle and bustle New York City advertising executive lifestyle. We open with him on his way to a meeting while he's frantically giving notes to his beleaguered secretary. While he's at the meeting, a page boy who's calling for a George Kaplan is flagged down by Thornhill trying to get him to send a telegram to his mother. This unfortunately attracts the attention of two henchmen named Valerian and Licht, who assume that Thornhill actually is George Kaplan. They pull a gun on him and abduct him, taking him to a Long Island estate with the name Townsend at the entrance. Thornhill is locked inside the library and then interrogated by a man who he assumes is Mr. Townsend, along with his personal assistant named Leonard. They are convinced that Thornhill is Kaplan, who seems to be some kind of spy who's checked in and out of various hotels. Neither man convinces the other that they're mistaken, and as the alleged Townsend departs, Leonard, along with the two henchmen, force a fifth of bourbon down Thornhill's throat and then place him behind the wheel of a car next to a cliff. Valerian is guiding the car towards the cliff when Thornhill comes to and pushes him out of the car and grabs the wheel. He then drunk drives down the highway, avoiding several cars in a series of near misses with Valerian and Licht in pursuit. Thornhill is finally stopped when he ends up in an accident with a police car and Valerian and Licht speed off. He's booked at the police station for drunk driving and tells everyone his story. And the next day he's given his chance to take the police to the Townsend estate. They discover that the couch cushion is not soaked with bourbon. And in fact, the liquor cabinet now only holds books. The alleged Mrs. Townsend treats Roger like an old friend and talks like he was at a party the previous night and suggests that he borrowed a friend's car and left the party while drunk. Thornhill suggests they question her husband and she says that Townsend will be addressing the United Nations General Assembly that day. The police all but give up at this point. Thornhill takes his mother with him to the Plaza Hotel where he knows that Kaplan had a room. They manage to slip up to the room but find that the bed hasn't been slept in and in fact the hotel staff have never met Kaplan so they assume that he is in fact Kaplan. 
The phone rings and Roger answers it. He realizes that it's the voice of one of his recent captors, and they ask him why he's answering Kaplan's phone if he isn't Kaplan. Thornhill and his mother manage to escape the hotel via a crowded elevator, even though Valerian and Licht are in pursuit, and he escapes via taxi to the United Nations with them following him. When Roger gets to the UN, he asks for Townsend, but is surprised to find out that Townsend is a completely different person than the one he met. He informs him that his house should be empty and his wife has been dead for years. As Thornhill is trying to show the real Townsend a photo of the fake Townsend, he recoils in shock because Valerian has thrown a knife into his back from across the room, killing him. Thornhill reflexively grabs the knife and this makes everyone around him think that he was, in fact, Townsend's assassin. In the confusion, he makes a run for it. He makes his way to Grand Central Station where he boards a train for Chicago to track down Kaplan. While on the train, he runs into a woman named Eve Kendall who knows that he's the alleged UN murderer and wants to help him escape as well as spend the night with him in her train car. As we see them disembark and dodge detectives in Chicago, we find out that Eve is in fact in league with Leonard and the fake Townsend. She tells Thornhill to wait for Kaplan in an open prairie after getting there by bus, and after waiting a while, he is attacked by a crop duster and narrowly avoids death by diverting a truck, which is then hit by the plane and both explode. Roger finds the hotel that Kaplan is supposed to be staying at and is informed that Kaplan left, but he does see Eve there, and he finds a way up to her room. He insists on dinner, but then as he's taking a shower, Eve slips away. It turns out that he was faking taking the shower, and then he takes an impression of her notepad to find out where she was off to and heads to that same address. It turns out that Eve, Leonard, and fake Townsend are all at an art auction, and he confronts them there. When he starts to realize that he is in danger, Roger tries to escape, but then is blocked by henchmen. He then causes a scene at the auction by making insane bids and then punching a man, so the police will arrest him and take him to what he assumes is safety. As the police are driving him off, the driver gets a call asking to divert him to the airport. Roger is understandably hesitant, but then meets a man known as the Professor, who explains that he knows that Roger isn't the real assassin, and that Kaplan was never real, and the fake Townsend is a man named Van Damme, who buys and sells international secrets. He wants Thornhill to fly to Mount Rushmore and pretend to be Kaplan for 24 more hours to ensure the safety of his agent on the inside. Thornhill isn't having any of it, but when he's told that Eve is the agent on the inside, then he agrees. There is a meeting set up with Van Damme in the Mount Rushmore Visitor's Cafeteria. Fake Kaplan says that he will let Van Damme go in exchange for Eve being handed over, and when Roger grabs Eve, she shoots him with a fake gun, and he's carried off in an ambulance, while Van Damme and Eve escape. Roger is united, reunited with Eve in the woods. He's informed that Eve is actually using this as an excuse to go with Van Damme back overseas. He objects, but then is knocked out by the professor's driver. Later that evening, Roger wakes up in a hospital room. After huming, humoring the professor, he escapes and runs off to find Eve at Van Damme's house. He climbs up and eavesdrops and finds out that Leonard has found Eve's fake gun and the two of them plan to throw her off the airplane as they escape. He manages to relay, relay this information to Eve. She manages to escape on the landing strip and he escapes from the Van Damme house and they drive off together. They abandon the car and escape on foot across the Mount Rushmore monument with Leonard and Van Damme in pursuit. They struggle across various president faces, but Roger manages to throw Van Damme off the mountain and the professor shows up in time to shoot Leonard. Roger and Eve are free to get married and share another train car. I'm sorry, that was possibly <laughs> too long, and I stuttered a yeah, lot. Yeah, you have the same problem Matt does. 
I think you understand the phrase um, summary. <laughs> the synopsis. I think it was actually was, a synopsis. That was beyond synopsis. That was if you were a child retelling you a movie they saw in the car ride home. <laughs> Maybe I should re-record this and send it. It was. Movie. It was a. You know, I the, the and you did not sound like this, but the the child in the car is kind of like. And then um and then and then there was a guy yeah. named Van Damme uh, and there was microfilm. And the other guy, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but Mark, you did not sound that at all. I, I would like to say nice job on the recap. That was, you can tell you put a lot of work into that. And it was uh, for anybody who may, maybe didn't watch the movie in the last week, like we all did. It was a good reminder for them. Thank you. There, there's all the, all it's all there. There's a weird balancing <laughs> act with, with brevity and descriptions. Yeah. Well, me and Matt were opposite ends of the spectrum when we started, where Matt's would be like three page essays. Uh, mine would be like, yeah, so Luke Skywalker's a farm boy, and then he meets the rebels and blows up the Death Star. <laughs> yeah, I think I need to start <laughs> learning how to do that. It's, it's like, because, you know, the first paragraph of this is like the first 20 minutes of the movie, but then by the end, I was like, they run across Mount Rushmore's face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's there's some shorthand here and there, but... Um, this is not a minimalist film. No, it's a maximalist film with maximalist Maximal. buildings, maximalist action for the 50s, at least. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, we're, we're not running and gunning like we do with in modern films, but you, you can't really expect that. Um, and, and I kind of don't I want it. Blown away right away. I mean, you know, I mean, my two favorite cities are, are New York and Chicago. And to see the just, I mean, New York was just, the opening of this film was just gorgeous. I mean, it was a beautiful day clear blue sky i mean just clean modern late 50s imagery i mean i just fell in love with the aesthetics of this film in the first five minutes i love what they did with the opening credits like over the building yes yes that, that was, was awesome cool. that's saul bass for you the uh the designer of those credits and many other credits uh we'll i think he's come up in a in our previous life Quite a few he, times. He has, and he'll be coming up in a few more weeks when we do Vertigo, which has an even better title sequence. So, <laughs> yeah, this is a this is a classic example of like the movie looks amazing because we live in a society, and the society built a bunch of cool stuff, and we get to see it in the movie. A lot of the stuff, a lot of stuff still exists. Grand Central Station and uh, the UN building still exist. I haven't been to them, but they they're there. You know, I guess this is. When people, I mean, again, there are many problems in the 1950s, but this mm -hmm. is where the uh, you wear a suit to Disneyland sort of aesthetic, I guess. So, hmm. I mean, he doesn't. Yeah, I like that he's on the run going incognito. He didn't think to not wear his suit. <laughs> yeah, uh, he didn't, be unheard didn't of, do right? anything he do to his hair or his change of suit, anything. He was just like, I put sun, he put sunglasses on. But part of the charm of Roger Thornhill is he's kind of an idiot. I mean, it's mm. like, well, that's one thing I find interesting. This whole film is like hearing your synopsis version. It sounds like a full on comedy. <laughs> it, it is funny, though. There is like it is a funny, lot of... but it, it's it is. It's also it... like exciting and well, you, you would though... list it as a comedy, right? Yeah. The, the New Yorker and the New York Times hailed it immediately as a masterpiece of comedic, sophisticated self parody. So, okay. I, I mean, that, that's how they refer to it in 1959 when it came out. Mm. I always thought of this movie, again, never having seen it until a couple of days ago, 
always thought of this as being like a suspense spy thriller sort of uh, genre. And I find myself laughing at this film going, is this just because it aged this way? But no, it was intended that way. So I I think that's just gives it a whole nother layer of interestingness. The thing is, Cary Grant as a young man, his bread and butter was the screwball romantic comedy, Arsenical and Old Lace, um, stuff like that. So uh, it is sort of now, I guess, when you put Chris Pratt in your action film, this, you know, in 1959, mm-hmm. it was putting Cary Grant in your action film. Yeah, but just just the back and forth with him and his mother was like hilarious every second of it. Like his mother was like so... I, I don't I don't know what her history is, but yeah, he's he's a great uh, comedy guy. It's like worth thinking about this when we just all think about, oh, well, Marvel put comedy and everything. And it's like not that's not the newest. Yeah, they didn't invent that. In <laughs> no. <laughs> Although this just, doesn't uh, have the oh, my God, did that? Did I just say that? It doesn't have the snarky no. comedy. It's again, it's, I, more, it's more screwball comedy, right? Well, yeah, the, the comedy I, was really like, even though you could list it as like self-parody. I don't think much of the comedy undermined enjoying the rest of the film. The The way I look at it, the way I've been thinking about it recently is the problem that Marvel films have is there is, is that comedy is used to break the tension constantly. And uh, you need then tension. Then you end up with no tension. Yeah. You, until the end when it's like the heroic whatever, but then the end is like a bunch of effects flying around. So you can't, be as invested in that as like Thor and Captain America staring at each other. Hmm. Your weird scale models of Mount Rushmore is is the best special effect, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) um, I've never been to Mount Rushmore or indeed the Americas. Um, It's not really that big, right? I always hear people are disappointed when they see it in real life. I haven't been, but I heard heard it was small also, also. Yeah. It seems it doesn't seems like the faces are like the size of two or three people from even from the film. I don't know if that's it's like the the establishing shots make it look bigger than the action scenes do. Yeah, I, I guess we're just thrown off because uh, at least Mark and I are the, the rednecks that they'd have the Confederate generals on Stone Mountain. So that's our yeah. analogy. <laughs> analogy. Yeah, they're ending. They're finally ending the Confederate laser show this month. Finally. Oh man, I want to see the Confederate laser so one day. Hearing I, from Matt, I went ten years ago, and it honestly the lasers were so dim at that point that it was like I felt like I could have just taken a laser pointer, and it would have been brighter than what the laser. I think they have the same lasers from like 1983, and they're just using them forever. I have no <laughs> idea, but yeah, it it's it was it had its uh, unique humorous charm, but you know. They're apparently just replacing it with a drone drone show, which sounds cooler. So there's so many tropes that we have here. Um, again, Carrie Grant's trope. I'm I'm just thinking of we were talking about the relationship with his mother, right? And mm-hmm. I'm um, thinking, gee, that it's almost like a precursor for Norman Bates. It's like you know, crank that up to <laughs> Spinal Tap eleven, and then you've got Ed Gein and Psycho, right? <laughs> yeah, it you know, crack me up right away when he when he called her. Uh, um, and the phone number is Bonneville 81908. I made a note of that because I'm a Pontiac man and I've got a Bonneville. So uh, I liked that 
that uh, it's not an area code, but whatever that prefix was that they used to use back in the day. Um, but when he's given her this story about, you know, I got abducted and they they uh, forced, uh, you know, a, a bunch of bourbon down my throat. And her question was, did they give you a chaser? He was like, no, they didn't give me a chaser. <laughs> <laughs> that is rude. Yeah. And uh, the best, yeah, the best line of the movie is the when she turns over to the, thugs in there it's like why are you trying to kill my son yeah <laughs> my favorite note was my favorite line was when he said please don't kill me i have two ex-wives and a mother and several bartenders to support <laughs> yeah I, I wrote that same exact one down oh yeah uh also i mean i think just him being able to drunk drive that well was almost itself a gag Yes, he snapped out. I mean, he sobered up fast. Like he was always he was laying there and, and just kind of like head bobbing, and then he just <laughs> kind of caught somehow where he was and can can fight this guy off out of the car and drive. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he seemed like real deal. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, Psycho was right after this, huh? Uh, That's really interesting. Pretty, yeah, pretty much. That's he went says. from maximalist to minimalist, I guess, because uh, Psycho is very small scale. So, but at the same the time, he was the original Psycho is black and white, though, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, that's an aesthetic choice, then. That's not. Yeah, a... he wanted mm -hmm. to make an exploitation film. I guess maybe Hitchcock's, uh, and I get that, that's what the movie Hitchcock is about, where Anthony Hopkins plays him, I believe. But uh, you know, like. But I just made a maximalist Hollywood blockbuster. Now I want to make an exploitation flick. But also, like, Psycho was a, a landmark thing because that basically invented, like, scheduled movie times. Because before Psycho came out, you would movies just play on a loop and you just show up and, you know, if, if you catch the, the second half of a movie and then watch the first half. But hmm. Psycho was the first time they had scheduled times because Hitchcock was like, no, no one can. You have to watch this movie from front to back. You have to watch it from beginning to end. So that was the very first time that happened. And also, I think it was the first time that like the the star of the the headlining star of the film was killed off in the first 10 minutes, which is stolen by Scream years later or borrowed. Hmm. Yeah, no kidding. Was, that was um, it. Uh, the, uh, you know it was, what film I think for doing that hmm. uh, i think executive it's executive decision godzilla yes, executive decision oh. <laughs> <laughs> i was just thinking in my head wait is it executive decision or i gave the name wrong where <laughs> me and my wait. friends or... we were on our big steven seagal kick we bought that and then what it's not Bene even a seagal film <laughs> beneath the planet of the apes except heston came back in the last couple of minutes too so that doesn't quite count <laughs> Well, he came back so he could that's, destroy the world. That's the fun version. I mean, Godzilla would be the modern one. Like it, it pissed a lot of people off when Brian Cranston died. And like, I think... God's, in Godzilla's case, I feel like that was a the film was made before he got big, and then the marketing jumped on him. I think it's that's, a, that's how it's entirely possible. One. I actually showed up late to that movie, and he was already dead. So it was pretty. He died pretty quick. Yep, he didn't suffer long. But I didn't um, miss Godzilla, though. Well, that's, that's yeah. uh, you, you could blink and miss Godzilla in that film. What if yeah. Godzilla died in the first 10 minutes of that film? <laughs> um, there have been Godzilla films where that happens because then it's a clone or a son or a, mm. his skeleton is in um, possessed by the ghosts of Japan's war dead. Or... And if, <laughs> yeah, if there was... Godzilla died, I mean, that means another monster 
probably would have just ripped apart Godzilla. So you have that other monster. I mean, if Godzilla gets, you know, Pomonia and dies, that's not cool, I guess. But So what if the first American Godzilla movie that was good had Godzilla die in the first 10 minutes of it? <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that film did bloody kill Godzilla. That would be a that would be a whole lot of Raymond Burr. <laughs> I actually really like that film. I'm just being it's, it was good, but, like, the thing is, Shin Godzilla came out two years after. And, like, Shin Godzilla is arguably the second best Godzilla movie ever in most yeah, yeah, yeah. Years. I so, would agree. So Perry opinion. Mason, Perry Mason is the Godzilla where Godzilla's died at the start. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Just, all that. Uh, all Raymond Burr for the, for the whole time. Yeah, exactly. He had nothing else to do, so he did court cases. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we should, uh, I mean, there's other actors we definitely need to talk about here. Um, uh, James Mason, I guess, is probably next on the people to talk about list. I almost wondered, like, if you didn't want this movie to be quite as humorous, but still have a little... I was like thinking halfway through you could like swap Cary Grant and James Mason and that would be interesting if they just roll swap, you know. I feel like if this was made much later than Cary Grant the the Cary Grant person I I bet this took place at a time when you wouldn't cast somebody like Cary Grant as your bad guy like ever. That's probably right? correct. I but do know I, that uh Jamie Stewart was uh, like Hitchcock told Jimmy Stewart about this, the plot of this movie, and he was super excited. So basically, Hitchcock just delayed the production of this until he was booked on something else, so he didn't have to like tell him. So he, so he could offer it to Jimmy Stewart, and then he had to turn it down because he wanted to carry Grant the whole time. Ah, Jimmy Stewart in the role. I, I mean, I can... yeah, well, that wouldn't have worked to me. I, don't, I mean, it would have it would have been fine, but it wouldn't have been this good. <laughs> I think he would. I think he could have had that pulled off that same sort of like, um, uh, sort of frustrated. Now, come, come on, what, what, what are we doing here? I'm not a bad man. I'm not. Uh, my name's not. Uh, my name's not Town. My name's not Kroger. It's uh, uh, it's Thornhill. You know, I think I think it might have worked. He would have been more likable, like um, that you were calling um. Thornhill basically an asshole, which that's I, yeah. I'm not calling, I'm not calling Cary Grant an asshole. I'm saying that Thornhill's an asshole because yeah, Thornhill's an asshole him. and kind of stupid and kind of he's he's smart sometimes, which is like a great way to do this character. Mm-hmm. He's likable sometimes <laughs> and he's unlikable sometimes. But Mason has menace. That, that's some nice, mm-hmm. but not I as mean, much menace as uh, Martin Landau. Yeah. Oh man, he. I tell you what, went. He, he must have like made a name for himself, sort of playing, you know, playing the the, the heavy, playing the bad guy, the henchman. Because Matt, it wasn't that long ago that you had um, uh, that he that he was in an episode of the Twilight Zone that you covered. He's uh, um, Mr. Denton on Doomsday, where he's kind of the psychotic. Um, bandit with the six shooters <laughs> yeah ah. you know make it i definitely recognize his face Denton he's probably dance. done this yep exactly right it's hard to recognize martin landell's face in that twilight zone because he's a laughing insult and cowboy where i feel like martin landell is like this is more like what you think of martin landell this or uh space 1999 where he's relatively severe right where yeah, so I mean, this this is a menacing Matt Landau for sure. I guess this is him at his most menacing, um, unless I'm missing something. No, I I think you're. Uh, I I've never seen him in this. I mean, I I'm used to him playing either. You know, my first exposure to him was Space 
1989. And then after that, in films like Crossroads and uh, Ed Wood, not Crossroads, I think that might have been what it is, um, the one with Richard Gere. Um, and, uh, you know, th- things like that were sort of like the older kind of the sage, not, uh, you know, not a bad guy. I guess he's not, in t- I, well, he's intimidating, but he's not, you know, scary in Mission Impossible because he's not the bad guy. But. <laughs> But yeah, he's kind of like the mad dog, right? The loose cannon and James Mason is your Van Damme is your uh, calculating. No, um, it's is it not supervillain? Is he a oh, supervillain? Because by the end, figure. it's the other way around. Oh yeah, yeah. By the end, you turn the, the tables, henchman's right? the one who actually knows what's going on. <laughs> and then yeah, Van Damme's yeah. In deep. You're right because uh, because Van Damme, I think, was a little bit. Uh, uh, I'll say infatuated with Eve. I'm trying mm-hmm. to keep it keep it politically, you know, uh, PG. Um, so yeah, uh, it was Landau's character that had to go to him. Like, like, look, dude, you you can't let her go. Like, she knows stuff, and you like got to take care of this. Um, so that was I thought that was interesting. Um, I did before we kind of move on. I wanted to like talk about that that estate that they that that initial. Uh, you know, pouring the bourbon down his throat, the uh, town where Mr. Townsend lived. Um, that place, I looked it up because when when um, Cary Grant went over and picked up, uh, he looked at the desk and the address was Baywood, Glen Cove, Long Island, New York, which was kind of like how things used to be addressed before zip codes was they would have sort of like the region of the state you lived in. And I thought that was people were still doing that on Long Island in certain parts um, when I was a kid. And that place was built by a family called the Pratts that have ties to Rockefeller oil money back in the early 1900s. And it stayed in their family, but it still exists to this day. It's one of those few Gold Coast mansions that still exist. It was bought and it's uh, it continues on as a conference center and hotel um, catering. People get married there. Companies have retreats there and stuff like that. And it's on. 55 acres of land. And I just, I, I thought the place was absolutely gorgeous. And the fact that people built things like that as their, you know, little getaway from, from their, you know, uh, living in the city was just amazing to me. And they have cliffs. There are cliffs on the North shore of Long Island. Yeah. They're more, more like bluffs, but they're a good, I'd say 60, 70 foot drop. Okay. No, just when I was okay, watching yeah. this as a teenager and not maybe having enough geological info, I was just like, it seems they were just in Long Island. Now they're on Big Sur. How did that happen? Is that because of Hollywood? <laughs> but okay. Magic of Hollywood. I, I, want, I still want to know how he was able to drive that car off of the cliff when, you know, one wheel was off and one wheel was on. <laughs> <laughs> That's called luck. Drunk yeah. driving expertise. He's, That's it. he's done it before. He's done that's, that's of, I drive better when I'm drunk. He's done a lot of crazy taxi. He's he played a lot too and, much crazy taxi. Yeah. And and getting back to his mom, did you do you remember when he was trying to clear his name and they went back to the mansion and there was no liquor, there were books and the couch was dry, it wasn't poured with bourbon. His mom used to be served uh, in bottles. Yeah, but then she goes, just pay the two dollars. <laughs> stealing a car <laughs> drunk driving spending the night in jail just pay the two dollars <laughs> well, he wants to keep his good name i guess that that gets back I'd... to the thornhill is stupid though um, i wonder if that was a joke based on that she's older and then back in her day it was just two dollars but 
maybe in his be, day yeah. it was his day it was probably still like a hundred bucks, whereas now it's like twenty thousand or something. I yeah, mean, that, that probably was. If the yeah. if the punishment is a fine, it's legal if you're rich. Yep. Mm-hmm. Ding 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 ding. I'm having a look at the actress here that played mom, which is a uh, Jesse Royce Landis. Uh, I don't wait. Think she's Landis. Uh, not not uh, I, that no relation. To me. No relation. Okay. That I can tell. Um. Apparently, her other big thing is playing the mom in To Catch a Thief, uh, another Hitchcock. Hmm. Um, and then, what was he? Oh, now I just wanted to check the actual. Okay, she's eight years older than Cary Grant. Yeah, that I, was I was thinking thing. this. I'm like, they seem like they're the same age. Yes, I thought the okay. same exact thing. Well, I just saw the uh, the meme from uh, Star Trek 2009 where it's pointing out that Oh, um, Spock is like six years younger than mom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's a little weird. Okay. But yeah, I guess that's just that's film. Uh, that's Hollywood. How much younger than him is his love interest in oh, this film? Yes, oh, yes. 20 years. She's like 30 something, right? Yeah. So she said in the movie that she was 26, 7, something like that. And I looked it up and she was 34 at the time. Yeah. I was like, even Marie Saint looked a little older than that. Um, how is how old is his character supposed to be? Because he definitely looks fifty five, and he's fifty five in this. Yeah, that's what I assumed. I mean, I, I mean, mean I, I you can consi- uh, consider that people age differently back then. But he's like the hottest guy on earth, so <laughs> it's normal for him to be look fifty five when he's fifty five. Look to the twenty twenty two fifty five. That is one thing that, as much as I love these late fifties Hitchcock films, you know, both Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant are looking just a little long in the teeth by this point. You know, it's like later Roger Moore Bond films, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very Roger Moore. And, uh, he looks a little better than Roger Moore. I feel like Roger Moore Bond films, like somehow his makeup. I don't know. The last time I watched a Roger Moore Bond film, he looked like kind of rough. And I think he's like just... very orange. Yeah, maybe he drank too much. <laughs> I mean, I will say I've got a simple. lot of respect for Roger Moore after I heard the story. One of the later Bond films, they brought in the love interest. And she was clearly like, you know, young enough to be his granddaughter. And he just made them cut all the sex scenes and the romance scenes. And in the film, she like strips for James Bond. And he's like, why don't you put those back on, love? Yeah, I, th- I think that was yeah. the, uh, the the young figure skater, uh, ice yeah. skater, who was coming on to and he kept saying like, and and stay I, away if, to to yeah. shun to say no to push away and if i'm not mistaken he also is like one of the only james bonds who is like not a dick about other james bonds it's like yeah all james bonds are good i i could be mis mistaken as that. i understand it he's just been an absolute top human being across yeah. his life so yeah. yeah not like a certain other james bonds <laughs> problematic <laughs> Anyway, Carrie Carrie Grant's fine with them giving him the younger lady in this one, I guess. Um, I, is well, this the best sex scene in uh, cinema? Um, no. What the train going into the tunnel? No. <laughs> 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 is this was that where that came from? Is this oh, where that, the origin? Oh yeah, that this is the origin of the train going into okay. the tunnel being the sex scene. So I don't know. It might have been. This is the most famous example. Let's. I don't, I'm not going to say it's the first. Although it could be. I don't know. Anytime you say something is the first on the internet, someone appears to correct you. Well, this is like like the um you yeah. Know, this is like the Beatles version, right? Where someone else mm-hmm. made it in first, but this is where you everyone knows it from. <laughs> this is probably yeah. This is probably a silent film where you like crank a little crank, and then it shows you black and white train going in a tunnel. 
Oh, the crank right. can go back out. Train goes out of the tunnel. Train goes in the yep. tunnel. Train goes mm-hmm. out of the tunnel. There's something yep. we're till you're to done. To. <laughs> till oh, you're done. the train goes in the tunnel. Yeah, yeah. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, while while we're talking about people, were saying, uh, how does she rate as a Hitchcock blonde, which is a very weird place to be? Um, I mean, they make movies about that. <laughs> I thought she was great. Um, She's the uh, best one I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) She was great. I kind of like, sometimes I really hated Thornhill's like misogynist bullshit, but I think that was everyone in that period. Like he, Hmm. he only called her a girl or a tramp. You know, it's just like, eh. it's like, you have to let that stuff. I understand. I have to let that stuff go. If I'm watching 1950s also let's get married right away like, like, yeah no wonder yeah. he had like two or three ex-wives already yeah a little yeah. grabby a little handsy a little definitely condescending um could not yeah it, that that was tough um grant does <laughs> the most awkward romance hands ever like when he's in yeah. the couple scenes where he's doing embrace one is tension one is just like fun time but both it's like he doesn't know what to do with his hands at all yeah that was almost where his chemistry hit a huge wall was when he had to when he was sitting across from her in the dining car and he had to be kind of romantic it was like it felt like his charisma just hit its limit he's like say well you know why don't i make love to you <laughs> like he very much says that hey why don't we why don't i make love to you I think that meant something slightly different in the 50s because you hear old songs from the 30s like, I want to make love to you. Yeah, well, that was was speaking in code. That was sort of like when Chuck Berry made my dingling, that also wasn't actually (laughs) about his bell. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe it was. I don't know. When James Brown was like, when you, when I just want to hug you, it, it, you know didn't mean that he just wanted to hug you yeah, when but, kiss uh, was singing about the love gun the the love gun yeah. wasn't a wasn't a gun yeah it's yeah, not where, actually where a pistol is not about a cat that went out in the rain no we're still speaking in the code even now james brown had a mirror above his bed yep just throwing that out there okay so i was yeah, in the- a love hotel with mirrors <laughs> last weekend i'm pretty in- i want to get some mirrors in my bedroom hell yeah big the, pro um, mirror here but yeah, so the, you, the romance in this movie is probably the way it has aged the worst. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, I, yes, but early on, before you know everything that's going on, and she's just like instantly wants to help him and it's instantly into him, I was like, oh, Christ. And then when you <laughs> yeah, learn it, that she is like the other agent and she's playing him, I'm like, okay, okay, okay. They knew what they were doing. That that did work. Give it a bit more well, credit at that. first, I was like, "Oh God, she's just like one of those people who's like the murderer, like the the people who write to murderers in prison. Like she's just yeah. into like I love murderers, but then you maybe, realize maybe no, maybe the guy he assassinated was actually like you know a horrendous turd, and she's just like <laughs> politically active. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but also then you just realize let's not oh, assume no, the he's... cia are the good guys in every story <laughs> <laughs> and he's like i mean they certainly have problems in this uh but but yeah then then you're just like oh no he's an idiot he should have <laughs> known that somebody's not just gonna like want to bang him on a train for no reason at all <laughs> or because he's you know, a murderer because he's, you know? he's <laughs> talking leads. about some of the the idiot parts though like all right guy gets stabbed in the back 
falls into you. As he's falling, it would never occur to me to grab him by the knife and pull it out. I've got all caps here. Don't grab the knife. Never grab the knife. Also, if it killed him, it would have been hard to pull out. Right? It would have been hard to pull that knife out. Oh, sorry, sorry, you, you sold me on it when in your your summary you said he reflexively grabbed the knife, which doesn't make sense. But I was like, oh, it's reflexive. Yeah. Okay, now I get it. That's the only way I could summarize it. <laughs> anyway, I could have put like an idiot. He grabbed the knife and held the knife up like a stupid idiot. I could have put that in my <laughs> summary. There's there's the the re-recording we have to do. You have to change that line. Though. Okay. He grabbed the knife and then tried to put it back in and then pulled it out again and then tried to put it back in. <laughs> he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I seem to have taken your knife. Let me put it back. Oh, no. <laughs> what have I done? Ah. <laughs> uh, but anyway. um, Okay. Can we talk about the, uh, the airplane part? I have I mean, a question. Have I have a question specifically for Luke. Yes. Did this remind you of an Elden Ring boss? Because it really reminded me of an Elden Ring boss. Oh, well, um, the Radigan? entire scene where he's just sort of out there and uh, I don't know several. Oh, just of just them. like vaguely a, a Radigan. Just Ring vaguely, boss, yes. It feels it felt souls like. I guess. I mean, for me, my reference would be more Monster Hunter like because you fight a lot of flying dragons ah. and stuff in that. Uh, I, obviously, I was not that familiar with this film. I knew this scene was coming. Just that tension it's on the where, box where the uh, I don't know the absurdity of it where he's just sort of alone and he's not really expecting anything. And then, yeah, maybe not huh. specifically Elden Ring, but definitely like a video game boss. Right. Yeah. I've had I've had the, you know, you're on foot and here's something flying. How are you going to deal with it? It was interesting because yeah. when he got off at, at stop 41 or Prairie Stop, I guess, on, on 41 uh, was the name of the place. Almost immediately, a long black uh, Cadillac kind of town car limo drove by the opposite way. And I was like, that is probably not very common in Indiana in 1959. So I thought that would come somewhere back. But I think he was definitely being surveilled at that point. And then that kind of crappy like 38 Ford or something pulled up and then – you know, the airplane came and, and that kind of thing. So I just, I was sort of wondering what, what if any of that significant, was that, was that long black car part of the story at all? Or was that just a car driving by? Well, I think a I lot of the, the film is like, you're not sure what's paranoia and what's actually out to get him, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it works really well. Like our last quote unquote good movie that we watched M is like, all par- wall-to-wall paranoia and this sort of is too but just in a different way where you're mm. watching instead of watching one bad guy doing things you're watching one good guy get constantly just shit on by the entire espionage world but yeah mm. I, I felt like that was supposed to make you concerned that you know Kaplan was going to get out or whatever fake Kaplan or some version of or some guy <laughs> someone of uh, Van Damme's henchmen was going to get out of the car and then shoot him in the head and at that moment I was like wow, they could have just really sent a guy here and shot him in the head and left. Yeah, they did a really talk about with the whole plane. Terrible yeah. job with that. You know, and with the with the pesticide, you know, when the when the crop duster guy gave up on bullets and just went after him with uh, the crop duster stuff, I was like, man, they're playing the long game with this guy because it's not going to kill him right away. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. those pesticides are probably not going to 
lead to a, a long life for him if you got all those dumped on him like that. So, so Mike, do you think you could have uh, pulled up in time to avoid that truck? Uh, that was such a sensation. <laughs> it really was. In fact, my my note was shittiest pilot of all time. <laughs> yeah, it was that was part of the absurdity. And then the the newspaper headlines called it a holocaust. <laughs> that was interesting. I guess that word wasn't uh, that as associated with what it is. And I also noticed <laughs> no. that the, the headline said two die, two die, and mm-hmm. aircraft thing. But so the truck driver and the truck driver co pilot ran away. The I can see the pilot dying, right? I think he was one. Was there a second gunner in there? Maybe I wouldn't Mm -hmm. be surprised. There were two guys in there, even though we know that we know Valerian got out, but Licht is never seen again. So it is assumed that Licht died. Maybe it was like Licht and his friend, some other guy. Yeah, because the way the shots were coming out of that airplane, it was. I mean, it was not a uh, like a nose-mounted gun firing at him. It was sort of somebody else firing as the as the airplane passed by. So yeah, it must have been a like a pilot and a tail gunner. So Thornhill now has caused like thousands of dollars of collateral damage at this point in the film. <laughs> he's well, Van Dam has really. I mean, he's sitting. Yeah, I know. I was just you know playing devil's advocate. You know what? And and there's the line also. And I was going to say, really, it's the, you know, it was the the government and, you know, the Cold War collateral damage. But, you know, I love the line when when uh, Thornhill said to the professor, um, if you can't if you can't win a war without, you know, entrapping or without using young ladies like this, then maybe you ought to lose one every once in a while. I thought that was really, really poignant. Yeah, and then he said, "We are losing this one." Which he did. Was, yeah. Was there a common like perception that the U.S. was losing the Cold War in the late fifties? I don't there's feel like I'm aware about of that. it. <laughs> I'm sure there's paranoia. I guess you didn't know. It. I guess you just didn't know. I mean, fifty nine was the beginning of the space race. Uh, it probably I don't know exactly when this movie premiered, but that was what October of fifty nine was Sputnik. So well, I, uh, I know at that time Korea were... didn't go great, right? Yeah, Korea didn't go great. That makes sense that, yeah, that makes sense that pre-space race, it would probably feel like we're screwed, even though the space race, I don't know, most of what this, it feels like what most of the space race did was create generations of people who grew up with the uh, feeling that we could never get back to space. We never get back to the moon. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the other thing is like during the Cold War, same as with during the war on terror, it was you want the public to feel scared and like we're at risk of losing at any moment. That was the objective. I mean, you might want your own, your own agents to feel like you were losing, <laughs> just to like put a fire under their ass. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. And you know, with the space race, the Russians were first in pretty much everything except I'd say up until like Apollo eight, like they were the first person in space, first person in orbit, first woman in space, um, first spacewalk, um, you know, first, man-made object landed on the moon kind of crash landed on the moon if i remember right so it wasn't until you know we had apollo 8 circumnavigate the moon and then you know actually won the space race that we pulled ahead it was more of kind of we were behind the whole time yeah that makes sense but um sorry i was i was trying to remember the exact is sputnik 59 or 57 
thought it was 59. Uh, I'm just wondering if that was part of the mindset when they did this that oh the, the uh, 57. I, okay, so oh yeah, so it was it was for, it w- that would have been really in people's consciousness when they were making this movie. Yeah, until America got something in space, uh, I guess it did feel like a like we maybe we were losing, you know. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think it, it wasn't until like really the '80s that we really started to like see what kind of economic decay the Soviet Union had fallen into. You know, at this point in time, well, it was still like brutalist architecture and symphonies. It well, was also propaganda. Just, I mean, I mean, the fact is that we didn't. Even if you could call the Cold War a war, we didn't really win anyway. Our opponent just collapsed. Yeah. It's like, that's, you know. TKO. Um, I know as an American, I'm sure Americans don't really like to even think about it because we're really into victory and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I feel like Klingons wouldn't be satisfied with this. No. No, they need they need blood and wine and blood wine for that, right? Yeah, <laughs> they would blow up their own country. It's like we didn't really win the Cold War. They would just blow up the entire country. It's like that that Mister Show sketch with America has blown up the moon. Why? Because yeah. we can. <laughs> yeah, it's time to blow up the moon. <laughs> and then um, when they show it, and it's gone on to the next sketch, and you just it's like a board meeting, and just in the corner of the window, you see the moon blow up. <laughs> <laughs> nobody cares yeah. oh you know and we are we are a couple of days away from the new uh john mulaney uh stand-up special on netflix and he does a great cold war synopsis uh we saw him live in june and i hope that made it into the live show i think it i think it probably did yeah i saw him like a year ago it was pretty awesome especially the the material he had i mean the stuff about him getting off drugs was inspirational, but everything he had that was like after that was super great. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I'm gonna. Uh, I, I've got two points on the film I want to throw out. One of them is just the fun fact. I'm pretty sure this was about the time Cary Grant was publicly doing a lot of LSD. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nice, like, seriously. Legend. Yeah, he was taking. Yeah. Out, he had migraines, and uh, it, it was this is nineteen, this is late fifties, so it's not LSD. It's just this experimental drug, and he's uh, having press conferences and saying, "Hey, this is working great." <laughs> well, it's like really interesting how, like, whatever you call it, prestige Hollywood and like acid stuff kind of overlap a little bit. Like Easy Rider feels like the the uh, focal point for that. Right. So yeah. this is ten years earlier, and it's, it's mm-hmm. I mean, now. If you just heard someone, I'm doing like. I'm taking an experimental something. It doesn't. I mean, that doesn't sound weird. I mean, a little weird, but maybe not super weird. Um, now, if you're watching Cary Grant tripping, that would probably be weird. But <laughs> I don't think he was tripping at the press conference. So. He might have been experienced enough that he would have uh, concealed it. Well, yeah. apparently, he can drive drunk without anyone noticing. So. <laughs> you know, yeah. press conference while tripping. Yeah. Um, also, we haven't talked about Bernard Herman yet. Oh my God! Yeah. Oh yeah. This, amazing I, this has to be one of the best themes ever yep uh although it is reused quite a lot but it's kind of like it, it you can <laughs> it's yeah it's fine it's like star wars you can just reuse that you know yeah i i don't know i mean john williams is great but whenever someone is like john williams the greatest ever i'm like uh, uh bernard herman hello <laughs> um i will say i can't remember a single moment of music from this film Mark just did you the the, the... <laughs> I 
Uh, I guess. Well, you know, John. Well, the thing is, no, I'm not, I'm not uh, trying to like be like, well, you know, I think it's shit. <laughs> Just it didn't stick with me massively compared to like a lot of the visual images did. Mm-hmm. Well, John Williams. The thing is, you expect this film to have a huge soundtrack. Part mm. of the reason we love John Williams so much is because a movie like Star Wars would never have that. Would never have had that soundtrack before Star Wars. Like mm. that didn't happen. Yeah, it would have been like you know analog synth music. Uh, if, if yeah, not which is also cool, but yeah, it very much changes the tone. Uh, this movie with analog That's... synth music, for example, would not work at all. We'll we'll get into that whenever we do a Star Wars movie. But I'm like, yeah, I think it's I think... it's pretty close to the top because this is voted on by the public. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a huge. I think John Williams is a huge part of that, like achieving that type of success that it did. Oh yeah, he's the force. Yep. But if, if somebody's you know is listening and they were not familiar with his body of work, just you know check out his IMDb page or or Wikipedia page. I mean, it it goes all the way back to Citizen Kane and just keeps on going. I mean, just just through decades and decades and decades that are packed with work. And, and let and, me um, you know people are like, whoa, whoa, he's better because John uh, John Williams rips things off. So does every composer. So does Beethoven. Yeah. So does Bernard Herrmann. He just ripped off more impressionistic yeah. music rather than the really obvious stuff, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my favorite, I think my favorite Bernard Herman work is taxi driver. And he basically turned in taxi driver and then like went home and died. Like he just, and, and when you watch that movie, it feels like it is haunted by the ghost of Bernard Herman. It's like that again, that film like star Wars has a soundtrack that doesn't feel like it belongs in it, which is part of why it's uh, incredible. And and maybe for Luke, you saying you don't remember music. It, it really is like serve. It serves the film. Yeah, right? yeah, it, it oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's bad. The film was exciting, and the music helped with that for sure. But yeah, well, I, it wasn't like a John Williams like. You know, I'm not going to be humming music from North by Northwest later on today or anything. I will be curious when we get to Vertigo in a few weeks if that one hits you harder because I, I would say that is the superior Herman score. Right. The taxi drivers is superior, and yeah, well, we're gonna do Citizen Kane too pretty soon, so uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll you'll get a lot of hermit into your ear. Yeah, I th- hermit in your ear. Well, I think I contrast that to, uh, yeah, it belongs. His music belongs in this film. When I think of music that doesn't fit with a film, but it doesn't work, is like two thousand one, a space travesty, where all the music is like, but it's just sort of dumb slapstick you know it doesn't it doesn't make his you want to I, I don't know how to specifically say play against like have, have any of you seen gone girl i have not I'm, I have. I'm aware of it i haven't seen it but it has a trent Reznor soundtrack and most of it is like a tawdry drama so it's like there's a lot of like bleep boops one of the worst fits I've ever seen for a soundtrack. We, we've already been talking about Bonds. I guess it's uh, we can do this. I was going to compliment uh, that anyway. Go ahead. Uh, think... uh, sorry, compliment what? Bond? Oh, Gone Girl has a good soundtrack, but you go oh, ahead. Oh, 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 okay. Sorry. Yeah, I, thought <laughs> I just you were wanted to clarify it. that, that I'm okay. saying that it wasn't good. I, anyway, go ahead. Okay, because I was going for the it didn't work. Is um The one that never sat for me is Goldeneye. I felt like that hmm. it, it's the guy. I think the guys from U2 did the score, and it was like, like where there's a tense action scene and they're playing like sexy music and then they're like playing dramatic music during the romantic scenes. It's like, what's happening here? I, I love the movie, but the soundtrack I've always had a problem with in that one. So 
Was this sort of like a Ballistic X versus Sever soundtrack where it was kind of like a lot? No, I don't no, know it, was, it. it was loops. It was pretty orchestrated music, right? It was, the orchestration <laughs> was like all wrong, in my opinion. Like for the scene, it it didn't fit at all. Well, there's ways. one thing thing that comes to mind immediately when I think of doesn't fit is that have you seen A Beautiful Mind? That might be on this list. Um, there's a there are parts in A Beautiful Mind where he's like shooting FBI agents and running away, and it plays this like really dramatic, sad music. And you find out later, spoilers for a million-year-old film, that he was <laughs> insane in imagining all of it. But the the music is like the music doesn't fit for an action sequence. It's just supposed to like give you a clue that he's imagining it and is extremely mm. sick. Right. And I I hated that choice personally. I think they should have just made it action music. But anyway, not a bad film. That was just a particularly bad choice. I thought. Uh, you could go it, by either way on it. You could see that as a genius. Some people are probably like, oh, it's so genius that it did that. But obviously I, it didn't land for you. I, mean, I haven't seen the film. Yeah. I'm like arguing with you. Yeah, it it just was however it hit me at the time. I was just I was just like, something's off, but it wasn't. Like, the way you explained it, though, upon a second viewing, you would re- that would really be powerful. Like, I, I think I only saw the movie once, but if I watch it again after after this conversation – like that would bring a whole nother level of nuance to it. I'd assume so, but it felt maybe a little bit too much like people writing for something that they already knew. People writing for someone who's already seen the movie. I don't know. I feel like you should get to you should be able to watch it once. I don't know. I'll watch it again someday and then I'll come back. I think it is. I'll come back to this exact podcast. To. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Well, um, hello, time travel mark. What do you think of a beautiful mind now? I think it was moving. I no, saw you, it no, you, you put it. You you put the you put the clip in here. All right, clippy <laughs> clip insertion end. Okay, now back to North by Northwest. Yeah. Uh, any big talking points anyone wanted to throw on this one before we uh give it its final consideration? Hmm. You know, I I just won the imagery of this movie. I think it was just gorgeous. I mean, just uh, although we talked about Mount Rushmore a little bit, um, George Washington's head is 60 feet tall, six zero feet tall. So, you know, about 10 people tall. Um, but just Van Damme's lair over uh, wherever it was near Mount Rushmore was just phenomenal. Um, I didn't think it was funny when Eve ran down after the gunshot and she said, what's that noise? She just shot <laughs> Thornhill <laughs> twice with blanks. Shouldn't she know what that noise is? Um, yeah, but again, she should have gotten rid of the gun. Just, really? just kind of going, going back to what it, um, you know, what I got out of the movie was if you sink to the level of your um, adversary, you become no better than they are. Uh, when you, when you, when you kind of turn your back on your principles to win a war, you've already lost. And just that line of you fellows can't lick the Van Dams of this world without asking girls like her to bed down with them and fly away with them and probably never come back. Perhaps you ought to start learning how to lose a few cold wars. I, I mean, I, I think, I think that was a really, really good point. Um, you know, if you can't hang on to your principles, what are you doing? 
Oh yeah. <laughs> Where final... did this release in terms of like other spy fiction? Was this uh, early? Was before example? any James Bond movie, right? Yeah, that's why I'm saying this is kind of the template for the Bond movie. Uh, it's because they offered Cary think... Grant a Bond movie, but it's only one. one. Of, it's one of the first mentions of the CIA in film, which I, I think we talked about with our past guest Tom a little bit. Um, Interesting though, because he didn't admit. He goes, "Who are you?" He goes, uh, "FBI, guy. CIA. We're all part of the same alphabet soup." Mm-hmm. So he never did say, right? Like, I yeah, you have to said. basically deduce that he's not FBI because you've already met the FBI and yeah, but they um, did mention it. You're right. And it, I, it, I thought that was that was a nice touch because it's like I can't even tell you if I'm in the CIA. Well, uh, they show they show the headquarters, but it just says intelligence agency. You don't see yes. the full uh, Central Intelligence Agency. Ah, okay. So they were they were. I did know, I, and I did notice that, and I didn't um, sort of sort of connect the fact that boy, maybe maybe in 1959, people didn't even know there was a CIA, or maybe there was just rumblings of it, or maybe uh, you know they wanted to keep it. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think key. it was known the way it is now, at the very least. Right. It's like how I the think... NSA seemed weird when True Lies came out. Yeah, I think there was a vested interest in making it scarier than the FBI mm. <laughs> by by everyone. Um, anyway, my thesis statement is Total Recall is Paul Verhoeven's version of North by Northwest. Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so how much of this is a film? How much of this is filth? I guess that's what we have to be asking ourselves. At the oh, end are we doing episodes. percentages? No, we're just saying, you're just saying think... how much you think is... Okay, shall um, I go first? Well, okay, I was you go first. Say... Okay, go on then. I'm going first. Okay, I was going to say uh, definitely, you know, it's a, for a Hollywood blockbuster, it's the definition of a film, but the romance aspect is a little bit filthy because it's the 50s. I, yeah, pretty much directly agree with you. But film... Yeah, I agree. Yeah. This is definitely a film. Like This belongs on the good list. What's interesting to me is like, Is this one of the hundred best films of all time? Isn't it ninety eight? Yeah, I'm a Hitchcock dork. It is for me. It's like <laughs> it's good. It's fine. <laughs> but I, like, I don't know. Is it just I... because it's an early example? Because I I would say that there's probably several Bonds which I would say are better than this. Hmm. I don't remember if we even have any Bond on our list. No Bonds on the list. Sorry. <laughs> You know, it, it's an interesting question because as filmmaking matures, as effects mature, as writing and storytelling has matured the way it has, it's really hard to compare a state-of-the-art film to something that was produced 70 years ago. On the other hand, like if you consider like for its time and what it was then, you know, panoramic and cinematic and, you know, visually just just beautiful um, – I mean, maybe maybe that's what makes it deserve the place on the list uh, because it really I'm, I'm is hard to. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm genuinely asking. Like, yeah, it's, it's hard worth, to hard to answer that question, right? It's worth debating, but yeah, I I do agree with Mike that it just looks so good because of. I mean, just because they filmed it in uh, New York and all these awesome locations, which now you kind of can't do. I mean, I don't think this. Okay, this may not look as good as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that has to go to all these CGI lengths to make that look look the way it looks. It's um, yeah, but it's it's kind of hard. I don't think that I would put this over either of the last two 
film films we've done. I don't think no. I like this better than EQ. But I, I definitely a big factor in this whole endeavor is going to be um, English language films and probably particularly American films are going to rank higher than foreign films, which are definitely better. I yeah. think that's somewhat inevitable. Yeah, this doesn't cut like those two films do at all. This doesn't. I mean, but but it's fun and it's not. It it moves at a good pace and it's um, you know, it does have that chemistry. I think yeah. I got properly theme park indoctrinated into Hitchcock. I was uh, talking to some of our mutual friends, Scott, last night, where he had gone to Universal Studios Florida around 1990. So did I. Both of us went to the Art of Hitchcock, which had like a um, kind of an effects show. And then there was like a walking, a walkthrough where you'd walk through set pieces. Like, you know, you'd walk by a Statue of Liberty head or uh, you know, the plane from this movie or whatever. The, the Bates house was there. And yeah, as a, you know, I'm like 12 years old or something that, yeah, that actually lit a Hitchcock fire under my butt. So when it was like, oh, they're showing the restored North by West. North by Northwest or the restored vertigo at the, uh, you know, Phipps Plaza. Mark knows what that is. And maybe Mike does. Mm-hmm. I go see him, you know? So I, I was like, Oh yeah. Hitchcock. I'm la- at 12 years old. I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hitch up to this guy's cock. No, that's not right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to hitch your wagon to his co- cock. Um, yeah. <laughs> Matt, I have a question for you. Would you rate this higher than psycho or the birds or vertigo? Um, I'm just throwing out three random ones. I think the birds is definitely a cut under the others you just mentioned. Uh, Man, I kind of love it's probably the, the one I'm most interested in seeing because it's yeah the closest the, to being a creature feature or a monster flick, you know. Well, the birds like, has stuff that is actually scarier than like any movie that I've seen that that dates before like 1975. Yeah, period. I'm, I'm trying to think of what I. See, since I was 12 years old, I mean, I, I do revolve to the late 50s Hitchcock. I like a lot of the 40s stuff, too. But, yeah, the late 50s, early 60s is sort of the, uh, you know, the popular prime, at least. Right. And I, I think mm. I've shifted, like, you know, for a few years, I was like, yeah, Vertigo is it. I, I think for a few years I would have called this one the best. A Psycho, you know, different times. I'll give you different answers on those three, you know. Yeah, like Psycho is Psycho to me is maybe more important than it is like actually better than other stuff mm-hmm. but it is really important it's hard to separate that and it is really good um but it's very different from this film like i mean night and day different yeah the the three i'm most familiar of the the ones you've been speaking of are are psycho um the birds and and this film and i would i would probably put this one right right in the middle of those three and um that could probably change at a moment's notice they're all just such great movies yeah i've i've never seen one of those films i didn't like i think my favorite one is is it rope is that the one with like the the one the take scary... which isn't really a one take i don't rope it was the one, one with like they have to hide like it because a... they had to change the film reels every seven minutes so it'll go behind a, a you know a lamp or something but yeah like um, an intense scary uncle is the main character in it is that what i'm uh, thinking of i i'm <laughs> it may be something totally different i i should reiterate that i did most of my so doing as a teenager so okay there's so <laughs> many i'll come back you can uh insert i'll tell you the name of the movie you can insert it in here i'm not gonna later. do that <laughs> okay <laughs> um 
Uh, did, does someone want to throw some filth on this movie? I guess we're basically calling it a film, though maybe not as film-like as some of our foreign... I will movies. say the... Anytime it was in a vehicle, it did very, very obvious inserting <laughs> the outdoors stuff. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like a joke. Which like, it might well have been, right? That's another... We're dealing with a film made a very long time ago parodying films I haven't seen. <laughs> so there is a, probably a lot of stuff that's a joke and I don't get the jokes. Okay. Um, how long of a filth review do you want? Do it. Uh, oh, I, okay. Time in the world. We start. Here we go. Okay, if you huh? you do. I have you one, one too. So. I oh, you one. you go ahead. You go first. Okay. Sorry, I thought since I have the iPad, I did go ahead do that. Uh, it might be the same one. I don't know. Long mm-hmm. by the tooth by C. Fishy. One star. So I watched this movie with great expectations. Supposed to be one of the best suspense movies of all time. Well, it wasn't. I couldn't finish half of the stupid movie. It's made in the 50s, and apparently people in the 50s were naive enough to believe the protagonist would be stupid enough to rush grab the handle of the knife after a man talking to him was stabbed, thereby, therefore making him the suspect. How stupid can he be? I couldn't finish watching this film. The soundtrack was really awful and trivial. I guess that was to be expected in the 50s. Apparently, modern suspense has advanced much more. I watched Silence of the Lambs yesterday, and it held up to the times really well. Not this one. <laughs> okay, there's there's our one-star review. Yep. Uh, is that what you had, Mark? No, I was going to read the one that said, failed my 30-minute test. He only talks about the first 30 minutes. Oh, go ahead. That, I didn't. It said warning spoiler, so I didn't click on it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, well I'm okay, but I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to spoil this film that you've seen. You should cherry-pick this one, by the way. Just now I'm looking at it. <laughs> failed my 30-minute test. DLP Burke. Warning, spoilers. This film is the latest to fail my 30-minute test. I give every film 30 minutes, and in that time, if the film has promise, I watch the remainder. The only films that fail the test are those that are very poor, for one reason or another. In the case of North by Northwest, the issue is blatantly clear. The script is ridiculously contrived, and the story is totally unbelievable. I cannot watch a serious film when it disregards reality in such a casual, offhand manner. The premise of a man on the run because of mistaken identity is not too shabby, but there are so many insulting things the writer does to force the story. I'll give you one example of many in the first 30 minutes. Protagonist is abducted at gunpoint from a busy public building, already that's absurd, by two men who then take him elsewhere. He meets their boss who tells him that he may as well drop the innocent act and that his identity is known. After he unsuccessfully tries to convince the abductors that they have the wrong man, they force bourbon down his throat and then attempt to crash him off a cliff in an effort to make his death look like an accident. Hey, Even Mark, Mark, Mark. Of- <laughs> you your summary again? Uh, <laughs> if I could direct you to go two paragraphs later and read that one. <laughs> Okay, I'll, re- I'll watch it. It's fucking twice. long. It's a thirty-minute review of the first thirty minutes. <laughs> Here, I'll read the, the the zinger at the end. The level of realism is already rock bottom, and it only gets worse from this point. On Psy, for example, the protagonist decides to do his own investigation work. Blah blah blah. Anyway, the the punchline I guess is no one would ever think about doing this. Humans don't be- behave this way. All caps. So I, I like that bit. That's a pretty it's damning a, indictment I, of any everything. story. I, I gotta I gotta go back. I think people misunderstood this movie, and I was guilty of it too. I thought it was gonna be like a psychological thriller suspense thing. And when I read that the New Yorker, like this is what they thought about the at the day, at the time that this movie came out. 
um, hailed it as a masterpiece of comedic, sophisticated self-parody. I had no idea that's what this movie was until I watched it. Um, so to think that those things like just pay the two dollars. Like that was probably hilarious because in 1959, even at that point, maybe DUI, maybe stealing a car, maybe getting arrested. It was starting to become kind of a big deal. And then just pay the $2 was hilarious because that's how things were back in the twenties or the, or the thirties. Are um, you? It's funnier now. <laughs> yeah. And, and to maybe. think that, that, you know, this movie was maybe supposed to be some sort of like really, you know, serious uh, thing is, is, and to judge it by that standards, uh, like the guy's 30 minute test, I think is, is really just showing their, their own kind of lack of uh, uh, intellectual agility to adapt to a, uh, a different movie than they thought they were going to watch. I think that could uh, be it. Like, I, I am wondering if we're being pricks by sitting here reading reviews like that, but it is just like curious. Like, why would someone? What do you get a one star review on a good, when a supposedly good movie, or a ten star on a on a, ter- a supposedly terrible movie? Is you know mildly fascinating. <laughs> you know, I think if you criticize something, then you should then your criticism is open to criticism, even though some people would scream at you that you're censoring them. But It is in a public you know. forum. Yeah, freedom <laughs> of speech, forum. Mark. Freedom of speech. I'm sorry. We, I'm free we to have... say what I want, but you're not free to criticize me for it. Stop <laughs> silencing me. You're silencing me. Cancel culture, Mark. Sorry I tried to cancel Stop you for your long me. summaries. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should respect it. your freedom of speech and let you drone on for an hour about every film we watch. <laughs> Um, no 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 it's okay you can silence me with your liberal tears (laughs) shove your liberal tears down my throat silence with an eyedropper no one can hear me i'm silenced i've been canceled my platform my platform your god-given right to a platform has been taken away from you (laughs) my internet no This is getting dramatic. Okay, I guess before we drone yeah. on for another, you know hour, what though? Wrap it up. Yeah, what? that stupidly long uh, one-star review. Twenty-one out of fifty-one people found it helpful. Well, it was long. They obviously put some effort into it. <laughs> it wasn't that grammatically <laughs> wrong. Not like some of the other shorter ones. <laughs> I just like, oh man, it's such a bummer when people are just like, uh, you guys. Have you seen Cinema Sins videos? Like the uh, I, used, I watched existence. them back in the day and they've just so eventually hate... you watch it after something clicks in your head and then yeah i'm the same now i'm like wait no this is awful yeah they're just <laughs> saying things it's like it's like my synopsis if it was all critical yeah <laughs> uh, uh there's moving pictures and we're meant to think those are real people ding sin <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, he's not actually driving in a car. Ding. I guess we should probably wrap this one up for today. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, is there, is there any other um, forms of criticism we want to cool out while we're at it? <laughs> um, any any Twitter, any anyone who tweets about our podcast being bad should be silenced. Okay, that sounds good. That's a that's a good way to to start plugs i guess but uh let me throw the ball over to mike and ask what's up in uh michelog orville land well um you know just waiting hopefully hoping for a season four renewal um putting out a couple of uh supplemental episodes uh next thing we have slated are to cover the uh the comic books written by uh david a goodman 
uh, who's one of the writers and executive producer on the show, um, illustrated by David Cabeza, uh, an award-winning uh, artist. So that is, uh, those are good. We actually chatted with David a little bit when we had him on the show about those, but we're going to give those the mission log treatment coming Wait, up. Which David? You just listed two Davids. That is a really good point, Luke. <laughs> David A. Goodman. David, a good man. And uh, yeah, so we chatted with him about just sort of like the creative process of it, but we didn't sort of break down the stories. So there's uh, six stories in 12 volumes. And I think uh, we may dedicate a show to, uh, a show to each each story or we may double up. We'll kind of see how, how that goes. And that's what's going on there. So check it out on the uh, Roddenberry Podcast Network or your favorite podcatcher. All right. Okay, we're all staring each other down. Uh. <laughs> okay you know if you'd like to support our podcasts that we make that are not to be silenced or canceled you can uh, throw us a few dollars on our, our patreon if you don't pot. support us on patreon you are literally taking away our free speech you are literally reaching into our mouths and removing food from our mouths causing us to starve to death which silences matt, us uh matt has, child. <laughs> matt has a child i am a child uh luke could have i a child. eat children <laughs> He eats children. Um, so you're taking babies out of my mouth. <laughs> babies out of everything. Um, okay. Uh, Patreon.com slash Podcastio Podcastius. Find other great podcasts where you find podcasts of other types, such as the Game Game Show. Oh, this game is going to go on game. as long as the summary. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we're probably on Twitter if Twitter still exists bye (laughs) see you later he's been silenced (laughs) (laughs) I'm silenced those on the path remember the vow be aware and authentic to where you are now. Fear Isle hides the marsh crocodile in veils of mystery. to float in gardens primal behind the moat. High Zagros mountains, their snow melts fair. Blossoms in hanging gardens. We're Celestial Book. Deep Space Aviators. Launch from Citadels in Brave Kirkuk. The things of the soul, truth be all told, were never meant to ever be sold. See through impulse, we're question desire.
be the high priest and walk through the fire. Springs of fire and water to immerse and be clean from the mire of dust to transcend from water.